Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, conversations on healthcare reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and today we have the privilege of having Jonathan Payne with us. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan has a background in public health and biomedical engineering, and he's currently a senior consultant at Regan Streep Institute and Digital Impact Alliance at the UN Foundation. He's also the director at Open Concept Lab, which we'll get into in a little bit. He has spent the last decade or more working in low resource settings where he has focused on the effective integration and adoption of information and communications technologies for health system strengthening. Jonathan, we're so excited to have you on the show today. Before we dive into our content, can you just tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you got to where you are now? Well, sure. I uh, happened to graduate at a pretty interesting time. Um, so there was, if you, many of you may know of the Millennium Development Goals, and about two-thirds of the way through the, the Millennium Development Goals, or the MDGs, there was information that came out that talked about um, how of all of the goals, the least progress had been made on maternal and child health. And my background as an engineer um, happened to really coincide with how the world was thinking about. They wanted to address uh, the, um, the lack of progress around maternal and child health. And what was really interesting is that with maternal and child health, um, unlike all of the other goals, which are, these are the, the global development goals. So things around like poverty and hunger and education and other um, health and well-being measures. Um, we, majority of those, we actually don't know what the uh, direct interventions are that are going to be most impactful. And that's different with maternal and child health. We know very well what the good interventions are. And yet we have difficulty delivering them to our populations. Um, and so what the world decided they wanted to do was put a lot of money and in, in innovation or in, in investment into innovative solutions for how could we use in particular digital technology uh, in the hands of health workers throughout the world, especially in lower income rural settings um, to improve uptake of the interventions that we already know um, for maternal health. So. Um, for me, finishing my public health degree and having a background in engineering, uh, it was a perfect opportunity to uh, kind of focus my efforts and, um, and be part of the kind of that innovation investments that the, the global donor community was making. Um, the, the other big thing that happened was that um, it was such a new area for international development, digital health was, that most of the nonprofits that were working in that space didn't have uh, teams yet. And so they weren't really investing in senior level, uh, like health informatics and digital health expertise in their company because it was too new and it wasn't clear how it was going to shape up. Um, and so what that led me uh, down, one of the things that's been true in my career is that uh, as a as an independent contractor consultant and started a consulting firm and um, because it, having to piece together projects from several different um, clients and um, 
and that has led to a lot of really fun and exciting work with a number of different um, organizations. And um, so what that's actually looked like for me then is uh, getting to um, work on a lot of mobile health and digital health pilots in low-income settings like areas like Tanzania um, and India and then um, and starting to see some of those get taken up and um, shifting then the focus to uh, not just are there in-health or mobile health interventions and digital health interventions that are viable that could work in a low-income setting, but what does it look like if you took those projects and they were adopted, um, you know, uh, regionally or nationally? And there's a lot of gaps still, and that still is an area that shapes a lot of my work now. Um, and so that has led me to where I am now, which is working with the Regan Strief Institute. And they um, happen to have this kind of rogue global health informatics team um, that has uh, been leading global communities of practice for uh, open health information exchange and um, other digital health um, and implementation kind of projects that, uh, and and they, um, and I think we'll go more into that later, but the, that open HIE um, has turned out to be a large uh, part of the focus of my work and the digital health work and, and low income settings. And another area of that has been on national health policies for, or digital health policies for what does it look like when a low income country um, is uh, get serious about investing in digital health and trying to scale it up to strengthen their health system. And that, of course, has to run across all of their health system programming and goals and align with their other national health investments and strategies. And that's been a, a, a process that a lot of countries have um, started down that path of, of, of designing and um, legislating their own digital health policies. And I've had the op opportunity to work in a few of those. Um, and so that kind of brings me to where up to date to today, uh, but maybe uh, that's good. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually so fascinating. The, the, the vast um, experiences that you've had and, and all of these different settings. And one of the things I'm really curious about um, are, you know, we think a lot about in the U S healthcare system, how um, we have, you know, access to, you know, cutting edge tools and really advanced technology. Some of the greatest, um, you know, scientists and practitioners in the world are, um, coming up with systems to help us deliver healthcare better. And yet we see that the global community actually does some of this better. And I know that there is probably a lot of things that contribute to that, but I was wondering if you could just touch on a couple of, of, of the reasons why you think um, sometimes digital health is, is advancing more rapidly in lower resource settings. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. There's I think it comes down to money and incentives is one of the, the things I've been I've been thinking a lot about this because uh, in the early days of digital health uh, in any part of the world, it wasn't hard to find some processes that were just terribly inefficient that you could streamline easily by, say, just capturing some data digitally and then sending it um, you know, remotely. And th there's an example 
um, that I refer to often in Malawi, where uh, an organization called Medic Mobile uh, had a, worked with community health workers who would go from town to town in a very rural part of Malawi and collect information on uh, injuries and uh, other kind of health surveillance data and then bring that back to a clinic where they could then try and mobilize resources and, and make sure that they're prepared for, um, say, if they needed to perform surgery and um, make sure they had the right supplies and expertise available in order to do that. Um, that's a really important part of uh, rural care in a lot of the world uh, because somebody may have to take uh, you know, much of their income and take days off of work just to make it to a clinic where they could have a procedure done and so the, the clinic needs to be ready. So you could imagine if you give a phone to each of those rural communities and they could simply text and call uh, the clinic and make sure and mobilize resources in that way um, and then have a data clerk or some other system that's helping to comp uh, compile that data so that reporting can be streamlined from there. Um, you could get dramatic improvements in efficiency from simple processes like that. So that's just an easy example of where your return on investment, the ROI in cases like that is obvious. Uh, but it turns out those types of innovations are harder to come by now. And that's not true uh, just in the U.S. That's true everywhere. And, and so I think with innovation, we talk about two big buckets. One is doing old things, thing, things you already do in new ways. And that's that kind of innovation we just talked about. But the other area of innovation is just doing new things and doing better things. And that requires a different type of innovation. When you're doing that on top of an existing system that is really sophisticated and complex, like, like the high income settings, um, that innovation becomes really expensive and difficult and the return on investment is less clear. Um, so an example of that for an EMR or electronic medical record implementation, um, so we went through in the U.S. Uh, the process of um, requiring that all clinics uh, capture patient data in electronic medical records. And there was a legislation called the High Tech Act and the Meaningful Use Program that had increasing levels or stages of compliance with EMR adoption and your ability to report electronically. Um, and that was a $40 billion program uh, and the actually required even further investment as the program went forward. And the evidence for that has shown, yes, there are some areas where we can see a return on the investment, um, especially uh, some areas around the ability to report and uh, efficiently and report surveillance data efficiently. Uh, the ability to uh, interoperate with some other systems so that, you know, a patient wanting to access their health data um, and send it to another provider, some things like that have actually gotten a little bit easier um, at, in some cases. Where, but by and large, it is very difficult to tie uh, things like um, in implementation of electronic medical record or some of the other large digital systems that we think of that having us in hospitals um, with a return on investment. 
And it doesn't mean it's not there. It means that it's just, it's hard to measure because there's um, a, like the um, an EMR implementation, just as an example, there's a, like an estimates that were done when meaningful use came out and showed that in a, say a five, a 100 bed hospital, that you might have a $10 million budget for EMR implementation over a five-year period. And it turns out that it's a um, only about 5, 10, maybe 15% of that budget is actually going to the tech itself. That um, because, you know, that and that means like server administration and buying the hardware, getting it all configured, your software licenses and things like that. Everything else is going to training and change management, um, and for the most part, and that's all up front because you have to pay all of your providers for the time that they're sitting out and getting trained on the new technology, and um, and so and then your ability to recoup your costs, your upfront capital expenditures on a big implementation like that is tricky, and you're going to get it, and mostly through. Um, you know, improve reporting and maybe some improved patient quality measures. Um, and, but that is going to take a long time to recoup that investment in any other way. And so we're seeing that all across the board now where we're, when you're putting a big system in place in the midst of already complex processes, it's not that there is no ROI, it's that it is very difficult to measure and therefore the incentives are pretty skewed and um, that looks different than most of the low-income settings where there are no EMRs yet. There are very basic reporting systems in place. Um, most healthcare is being provided in, in a more traditional methods with on paper and maybe it's getting captured by a data clerk after the fact, digital digitally and then um, and so you could have uh, streamlined some of the reporting processes but there's a lot of room for digitizing existing processes and and there's still a lot of room also for even in innovating and doing new processes we have seen a couple of examples of um, where um, you might say low-income settings have leapfrogged high-income settings and mm. <clears throat> one of those would be around community health that they're uh, in India, they are scaling up a tool called ComCare, uh, which is um, a mobile phone based tool that's open source that uh, allows you to uh, build some pretty sophisticated forms and decision logic that can be deployed locally to a phone and um, can work while it's offline and then submit data um, once they, you know, you might be back into an urban center. So India has actually been scaling this tool up um, across the country to its community health workers. And that would be uh, several hundred thousand workers, right? Because uh, um, in a lot of the low-income parts of the world, um, community health workers are the primary, the largest cadre of health workers. And because they there, there may not be enough infrastructure or um, healthcare clinics. And so these uh, community health workers will go and they may not have full clinical training, but could use a phone to walk them through some basic decision support, do diag uh, basic diagnoses and referrals, and help to do community-based management of care, uh, especially long-term chronic care. And that's been an area where we've seen significant payoffs uh, 
for the investment in terms of healthcare um, outcomes and um, the you know expenditures, the capital expenditures aren't as high. Um, so we do have some examples of that, but I think a lot of the difference between the low and high income settings is, is a result of that. It's the different complexity of existing processes and mm. the the way that incentives have, um, can be more easily aligned to, to uh, get a return on, on investment. Sure. No, that's super insightful. And just, I mean, it was really valuable the way that you compared and contrasted the high and low come settings and just the, the, the differences that we see when we're trying to do things like this. And I want to pivot just a little bit and, and hear some of your thoughts in light of the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, the shock that it's brought to our health system. And as somebody who has spent a lot of time in low resource settings and, and really thinking deeply about how to deliver um, high quality care, I'm curious, what are some of your thoughts on the lessons learned from these low income countries um, from your experience? Yeah, it, it's actually pretty interesting. The Ebola crisis, um, which was maybe 2013 or so, um, actually, I think there are a number of different parallels. So the, when that broke out in Western Africa, there were a couple key challenges. So when a, a communicable disease like that breaks out, similar to COVID, um, they're um, having testing in place is one of the most critical things, as we all know. Um, and the one of the others is your ability to do contact tracing, and the there was an immediate response by the global community, uh, as you can imagine, to the Ebola outbreak and to set up um, NGOs and local pop-up clinics and um, and and all kinds of organizations were coming in. It was a I mean an impressive level of um, charitable work that was coming into this. Um, and so despite all of the good intentions, that it introduced a ton of challenges. And the, the challenges of each organization um, in three different countries, all bringing their own programs, their own data collection techniques, um, their own reporting techniques, and we have stories of uh, you know, people at the ministries of health in these countries who were trying to receive information and reports from all of the different partners working in their countries and all of them coming in, in different formats and not being able to harmonize and actually have a good picture of what was happening uh, to their population, what was the incidence rates, um, how uh, effective were their contact tracing efforts uh, working. And, and so the, you would expect then groups like the WHO to be able to step in and say, let's set some standards then for how reporting takes place, um, for what data needs to be captured in order to have an effective um, testing, diagnostic, and contact tracing program set up for something like Ebola. Um, but the WHO was in also facing challenges with that, that they're not in a position to move that quickly like any bureaucracy is and their ability to say to to quickly publish and push new research through their pretty rigorous um, processes for publishing guidance and to say like here's the minimum data set um, here's your reporting requirements and then how do you get it out because it's rapidly developing like and something like with COVID 
where we're still learning about the disease. So it's not like it's a one-step process of reporting a minimum data set and the set of measures and indicators that you need to report against um, so that you can accurately monitor your population. It's actually changing weekly, monthly, and just getting that out through PDFs or phone calls and other measures is not sufficient, that you actually need to be able to do this in um, you know, a more sophisticated way that is interoperable, that that is scalable, that allows uh, people who have um, point of service tools to be able to um, to subscribe to, like, say, the updated guidance and to, to bring that into the local tool systems. Um, and so there were lessons kind of both at the, the country level that governments need to be able to put some guidance in place and they need to do so quickly. And that can't just be like narrative documentation. It needs to be um, what we call like computable guidance. And uh, so the WHO is now because, partly because of this is beginning to produce things called computable guidelines where they have a format and a method for um, giving you the public health kind of guidance and narrative paired with actual computable guidance that say, here are the specific terms that you need to be able to report against or the diagnoses that you must be able to capture. Um, and here's how you report against them so that you can effectively monitor your uh, your stakeholders or your, your population. And, um, and so the countries are now learning how to implement that. And the, um, and I guess one final thing that came out of this is the cross-border challenges is that the data sharing agreements uh, that countries needed to have in place to make it so that you could do contact tracing across borders uh, was was not there. And there was very little precedent for that. Uh, and because of all the types of data that countries are hesitant to share, health is at the top of the list. And uh, But there needs to be precedent and kind of legal precedent, policy precedent for how do we share information across borders and while that is primarily a legal and policy challenge, the solutions to it will still be technological and the systems that are in place to allow that to be in a sufficiently anonymized and controlled protective manner you know, are, are not or were not available at the time. So um, I think what we saw with Ebola is absolutely happening with COVID despite all the differences between the diseases. And um, I think there's one example, which we probably don't have time to go into of uh, a new set of programs called Digital Surveillance for Malaria Elimination. So uh, Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation is a major donor behind this, as are a number of other players. Um, and, you know, they're working with the WHO and other global players to help figure out what does it look like to support malaria elimination programs uh, through di digital surveillance, which really means that digital contact tracing um, uh, capability that we talked about before, and they're taking a lot of the lessons from the Ebola outbreak and beginning to implement it in um, in a way that uh, a country or many countries could more easily take them, adapt the adapt some existing tools, um, and have still have a common set of data and reporting measures so that they're not going to be in the same place as as they were um, many years ago with Ebola. Mm. Wow, that's really incredible. And in thinking about, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to jump a little bit and talk about um, the Open Concept Lab. And, and I know it really um, dovetails nicely into what you were talking about, developing more of these consistent reporting measures. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So one of the other 
outcomes of the Ebola crisis is that there was a recognition that of, of an old problem that it, if everybody uses, well, not everybody needs to develop um, the same tools, that there is a limit to how much value we get out of grassroots innovation. And at some point, we want to start converging on common solutions. But that is expensive to develop a common generic solution that's broadly applicable. And so there's a, an idea that came out of this. What if investors and donors were able to pool their money and the grants that they were making into a common set of tools rather than continuing to proliferate um, and you know, create pilotitis, as, as it's called? Um, and so this idea of digital global goods and what that specifically means is global goods are something that it doesn't make sense for one player to invest uh, or to invest to develop a global good that could be broadly and generically applicable. But it does make sense for um, it to be pooled and for everybody to share that cost because then it would cost less for all and it would offer all more value. And so this idea of digital global goods has really caught, uh, caught on. And there's a group called Digital Square that uh, is a pooled investment mechanism that a lot of donors have uh, jumped in and contributed to that to uh, identify key needs for digital solutions that countries need are looking for. Um, and these include things like open, uh, open MRS, an open source medical record system, uh, DHIS2, which is a district health information system that um, is a widely used tool for reporting uh, public health measures. Um, the Open LMIS, which is a laboratory management information system. There's a, there's a long list of tools like this. Um, and one of them is that uh, happens to be one that I direct called the Open Concept Lab. And so this is, as an example of a digital global good, it's a tool that um, helps organizations or countries to uh, make use of terminology or vocabulary standards um, within their health system. And so this is the same idea that we talked about with Ebola, that um, how do we know that um, a, let's say, the results of a, of a lung x-ray um, or a, a sputum test I'm, let me let me choose one that I know a little bit more about, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> let's say um, we do a, um, a white blood count and that at a hospital, um, they're probably going to use formal coding and terminology to uh, order a white blood count and to record the results of a test for a white blood count. And whereas at a rural or community clinic, especially in a lower income setting, they may not be using formal coding. They might have their own uh, method for doing that or own local code system for doing that. And But at some point, that information, both of those need to be submitted to a common database or a shared record for the patient. Um, and the way that we do that is you would be able to host or a, a or a country could publish their um, national standard for how do you report and capture or capture and report specific types of data, lab tests, lab results. And um, often they're going to use a 
there's the, an existing global standard and just say, rather than develop their own, they're going to say, oh, actually, there's already an existing code system called LOINC um, that is, uh, you know, very comprehensive and can be used to uh, code laboratory tests and results. And there is a specific code there for white blood count, and we um, we will translate both the hospital system uh, result and the local clinics result to the same code. And there's a, a set of tools that you can use to do that um, that are called terminology services. So the Open Concept Lab has an open source terminology service that is a digital global good um, that um, Ethiopia and Malawi and PEPFAR are using to publish some of their own um, vocabulary standards to map those vocabulary standards to the international reference vocabularies like LOINC and ICD-10 and others, um, and then to um, broadly publish and make those, uh, uh, broadly disseminate those to their stakeholders so that it can be used uh, more widely across the health system. Wow, that is incredible. And I actually, I think you're being pretty modest about only being the director because you actually founded this organization and kind of grew the concept, didn't you? So yes, it, it, this is one of those ideas that came out of a, you know, like a side conversation at a conference and was like, <laughs> oh, I think I could probably hack a solution to that together. And, um, you know, and it, it's something that happened more as a side project and then has now developed you know, over the last 10 years into uh, most almost full-time work. Um, mm. So it's been a pretty exciting process to see that evolve and, and become adopted by some you know, major institutions. Yes. Well, it's just such an incredible innovation. It culminates all of your experiences, it seems like, from everything you described in your career journey leading up to now and then thinking about the gaps that you saw and then innovating um, a solution to something that was extremely complex, but it seems like, oh yeah, this just makes so much sense. Why hasn't anybody thought about doing this before? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, we are ending, um, we're at the end of our time. And um, I, I just wanted to ask you just what's next for Open Concept Lab for you, um, for the future? What are, what are your next steps? What are you thinking about? Well, I think that, um, it actually is in line with digital global goods. The reason for that was to pool investment into solutions such as OCL or the Open Concept Lab to help them mature so that they become sustainable. And that's actually the majority of my work right now is, um, yes, still continuing to help implement and work with clients on um, using the Open Concept Lab, but most of my time is now spent on thinking about how do we make this sustainable and what does it look like if... Um, a lot of countries begin to use this, even though many of them aren't paying directly because, um, you know, they're in low income settings and the, the payment structures are have not been defined like that. So um, I think thinking through other uh, you know, ways to um, engage the community, the open source community around to continue development of the product and um, and to also engage the standards community to um, uh, embrace and adopt this platform in a more formal way um, so that we could ensure that um, the vocabulary standards that are being published here are up to date and um, and, and, um, and validated. And so th those are kind of some of the big questions that I've been thinking about. And 
Um, and we've had the privilege to be working with PEPFAR, which is the largest HIV AIDS donor in the world, and they're working in, in 30 plus countries. And um, they are using this tool and beginning to roll it out, um, you know, slowly across their systems and to support uh, health information exchange and um, and uh, as a core part of their architecture. And so that's been kind of the, the mechanism for this. And I'm excited to see that you know, kind of move beyond just PEPFAR and become, uh, you know, a more sustainable product that we're you know, seeing kind of a, a lot of different use cases supported by. Jonathan, thank you so much just for being on our show today. It's been very valuable and we appreciate your insights. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at dayhealthstrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George, Editing is done by Kate Gautung. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.